Sergei Medvedev, first of all, uh, welcome on behalf of Pushkin House and congratulations on winning the Pushkin House Russian Book Prize. Were you surprised? Well, thank you, Andrew. Yes, I, I have to say, I mean, these are like, uh, I think, normal words. Everyone says they are surprised, but I mean, I really was surprised because I uh, appreciated the quality of the competition and the other books uh, that were there in the shortlist. And I'm really looking forward to read many of them because also the topics are very close uh, to what I do, to what I'm interested in, especially, you know, on Eisenstein, Eisenstein, and then... Um, uh, you know, on the Bering Straits, as I mentioned in my acceptance speech, because I used to live there in Chukotka, I did some reporting uh, from the Bering Straits. So I'm really looking forward to reading all this book. And I was so fascinated by this. And so winning against this competition is a big uh, honor for me. And there's one thing that's interesting to me that's a common theme across a lot of the works in very different ways. But, you know, if you look at Zorga, the the double agent, as it were, um, you look at um, Eisenstein, you look at Sholokhov, um, and in their own ways, actually, the Chukchi, for example, in the Far East, and of course, the, the Soviet scientists in the Ukraine and around. And then, of course, your own position personally in the contemporary world, it seems to me they all have one interesting link, which is the relationship of people with power and particularly with authoritarian power and indeed even dictators in some cases, particularly Stalin. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts about that and how uh, people in the Soviet and indeed the post-Soviet world do try to navigate that tension and relationship with power. Well, exactly. I think you, he really caught the main uh, theme of Russian history, of Russian life. And actually, that's the main theme of my book, uh, The Return of the Leviathan. The Leviathan being the power, the big Russian power, the traditional Russian power, the big state. Because we lived uh, in this, as now we understand, blessed decade uh, maybe 15 years when the state has receded, when the state uh, moved away a little bit between 1990 and uh, let's say 2002, maybe 12 years or something like this. And then we saw the gradual comeback of the state. So, and indeed, this is uh, the common denominator of all narratives of Russian history. Um, the relationship of uh, economy to power, the relationship of civil society to power, the relationship of geography to power. And this is the essence of Russian history, which is built around the Russian state. Just consider this for one minute. Uh, like the key Russian textbooks on history are called Historia Gosudarstva Rasiskova, the history of the Russian state. We haven't yet written the history of Russia, but we have written the history of the state. And indeed, this is the history of the rulers, the history of conquest, the history of, you know, colonization uh, by the state and so on. So uh, we don't have the history of the land. We don't have the history of the family. We don't have the history of the individual. We don't have the history of localities. OK, there are some local narratives, but they have never been above uh, the key narrative of Russian history. So, yes, uh, the state has been the raison d'etre uh, of uh, Russian history, but also the main obstacle which now stands between Russia and um, the modern society. So and this is, yeah. And when you think about the relationship of some of those different individuals um, with power, I mean, of course, you have different approaches, don't you? You can be cowed, you can um, risk being persecuted, or you can flee. Um, and we've seen some aspects of that in, in multiple books. And I mean, even in your own 
situation as a very outspoken uh, commentator and critic on Russian power as it currently stands. How do you relate to and decide to respond to things that you feel are unjust happening around you? Well, actually, we also have to note that there is one example, one very rare example of successful resistance to Russian power, and this is the Chukchi, because they are the only people in the great Russian empire that didn't pay taxes to the uh, Moscow, to the St. Petersburg uh, Tsar, because there were three Russian Chukchi wars, and uh, Chukchis won in all three. So they won their special privileges, which lasted until 1917, until the end of the Russian Empire. So yes, if you are on your own land, if you are good with arms, and if you know your tundra, you can you can resist. Yes, and uh, of course, everyone has to charter her or his own way in the smarky waters of um, of the Russian state. Uh, so like I did. So um, for me, this is I would say this is a. Uh, a very important choice, I would say, a model choice, um, a life choice of uh, returning to Russia after 15 years of living in the West between roughly 1990 and uh, 2004, and then relocating back to Russia, knowing of all the difficulties and you know the loss and the quality of life, so to say, uh, that I was facing, and building my life in Russia, and now staying in Russia despite all the hardship and the increasing pressure which I feel on my own, you know, back all the time, uh, the pressure of the state, of the state repressive apparatus, and. Um, uh, despite, you know, losing my jobs one by one. So uh, a long time ago when I had this, um, so to say, uh, a war of words with Vladimir Putin, uh, it was when it was, oh, seven years ago already. So immediately after that, I lost my job at the Kultura TV channel uh, where I had my talk show, uh, weekly talk show, uh, which was watched all over Russia. Um, and then eventually also I was a uh, host of talk shows on radio, and not because of me, but all these radio stations that had some kind of an oppositional flair, they were closing one after each other because, you know, the, the media um, field, uh, the intellectual field had to be cleansed. And now eventually I lost my job at the high school of economics. And that's precisely, I would say, because I don't want to keep silent about things I, um, I see around me. So I continue my uh, critical discourse, my critical reflection on uh, the things which I see around me. And this is part of my life project, so to say. Mm, so to say, uh, attempting to stay in Russia until the very last moment, until I see that uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, danger and the risk of me staying in Russia is too high. So before this moment, I'm still here. I'm uh, speaking my mind. Uh, I uh, sort of see the uh, many people reacting to my words, and this is, uh, I think, still a big uh, blessing to be to be to be doing this. And of course, arguably, you have a greater credibility and a greater platform by being based in Russia. Do you think? Um, you know, is there even a hope? that sharing your views could actually bring about some degree of democratic reform, a change in the mindset to move Russia in a more progressive direction politically? I don't have such high hopes and high expectations. I just have my model stance and my individual life path and life project. And I don't uh, have the delusions of like changing the course of history or changing the country around me. I just, you know, 
do what uh, you must do and uh, whatever be will be so that's uh, uh, as, 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 as they say but um, yeah in a sense I think it's important that I'm writing and saying those wild stain in Russia because there are a lot of um, emigre people especially you know the those on the critical side of things mm, but uh, being detached from Russia um, I somewhat lose the feel for the for the zeitgeist uh, for for the air of uh, um, you know the Russian uh, events of uh, what's happening of what people see what people feel. So I think it's important that I'm staying in this, uh, so to say, as a journalist, you're sent to the radioactive zone, you're sent to the toxic zone, and you're reporting from inside. And uh, I feel like it's some kind of a um, experiment. I'm a part of this experiment, uh, me being part of it, and uh, so it's uh, it's challenging, uh, but it's also lots of adrenaline, and uh, you also feel that what you say and what you write, also every word of yours can have consequences, and you always cons calculate the consequences of what you say. It's really a very, and I think many, many of the people uh, whom we're talking about in this short list, uh, they also were facing the same thing, like what could Sholokhov say about the genocide of the Cossacks, right? Um, so, um, Eisenstein, you know, obviously he was uh, seeing what was uh, happening, the political reality around him. But how free was he in his speech? And, you know, people living at this time, you know, Shostakovich, uh, for instance. So what could they say? What kind of, you know, thin line they had to tread between sincerity and loyalty? So uh, that's, um, that's an internal question uh, that life in Russia poses. And in terms of the feedback that you get from your readers, you post on Facebook and elsewhere, uh, do you get some degree of optimism and hope from that when you see, and indeed when you've been engaging in the past with your students, for example, does that give you hope? Well, this gives me feedback, uh, but also, look, Andrew, I'm, I'm realistic. I know that this is a very limited segment of the population which has read my book, uh, which, which are my subscribers on Facebook, um, the students which make it to the highest school of economics. We're talking about uh, hundreds of thousands of people for a Russia of 100 of million, uh, 150 million people. Okay, if we take the bigger population, you know, the big cities, maybe we're talking, I know these are very rough estimates, but what, five, 10 million people in a country of 150 million people that are um, really, uh, I would say, look, like critical-minded, I would say the majority of Russians are critical-minded, but the people that can connect the dots, that can see the state of the country, connect the uh, state of the country with uh, the Kremlin leadership, I mean, there are very few of them. And um, it's, um, I feel like, I mean, I'm talking uh, to these people, uh, so to say, preaching to the choir, in a sense, um, because I think everyone faces this. We're living in this, um, you know, echo chambers, and uh, everyone has their own segment of Facebook, uh, has he, his or her uh, own, uh, sort of, sort of, media readership and uh, reading the same books. Um, and the media landscape is very segmented at the moment. And um, very few people are crossing the borders. 
or you have some really to be some really like pop art kind of thing like pop music uh, pop fiction like harari whatever to go to go cross borders to reach out to you know to broader audiences but once you go in depth uh, once you become political once you become sociological you're staying i think uh, with some very limited uh, electorates so to say readerships so um and, and i'm okay with that because also i think uh, the fate of nations is also decided by very small contingents of people it's always like this uh and um i know this sounds a little bit elitist in the age of democracy but um for instance we take the political class if we take the intellectual class if we take the humanitarian class um usually uh this kind of people had a disproportionate influence on the uh, on the course of events so this is the law of history and you mentioned uh, there've been as it were economic pressures you've lost a number of your your jobs over the years because of your your views and sharing of them but you don't feel happily perhaps any physical threat at the moment to your continued no. existence in Russia no not at the moment but you know we're living in a very precarious setting in Russia you can never be sure of your tomorrow i mean even irrespective of your political position of your political looks the police are at large and the security apparatus they can really go after everyone and um so i sort of factor in this risk in uh, in my uh, daily pursuits uh, that uh, any morning you can get a phone call you can get their bell uh, ring a bell ringing at the door at 6am like happened with so many people so it's another it's another part of russian life so to say these days and uh, i'm not i'm not saying that this is okay for me but i factor this in and this is my definition of tolerable risk Let's put it this way. So for anyone who's not yet read your book, just in a if there was a single thesis as it were that you think is is really central to it, what would you what would you describe that as? It's pretty much what we were already talking about. It's the unique role of the state in Russian life. And it has shaped Russian life for at least 500 years. And uh it's made some a small retreat at the end of the 20th century and that is when russia tried to make its breakthrough into modernity or rather postmodernity into the contemporary world but then from the beginning of the 21st century was the comeback of uh, putin the russian state is making its gradual comeback and uh, in doing so it's like using the models and mechanisms of the earlier centuries it uh, you know appropriates all economy it uh, um shapes uh, civil society it uh, you know infringes on sovereignty of individuals and um and so on so the, the book is about the comeback of the russian state it's like i think uh, the good metaphor is the leviathan from hops uh, the huge sea animal which you know comes out of the sea uh, clad in all this uh, Uh, you know armor and uh with all sorts of arms and uh in Russia's case uh there was also there's this film the leviathan by andreas vyagintsev where we see the carcass of the big uh, sea animal rotting somewhere in the russian north and it's precisely like this because there was a sea animal which has retracted back into the sea for some time and now it's coming back on the shore 
and it's suppressing with its own mass and it's destroying all forms of life uh, that have emerged uh, on the shore uh, during the past 25 years. Uh, so this is a uh, story of, uh, of a comeback of the state. Now, and uh, another thing, it's, um, it's a story of one man, but much more than that. I would not like uh, to see this book as attributing a unique historical role to Vladimir Putin. I would say he is rather a victim of the events. He just happened to be at the right man, uh, at the right point, at the right time. And uh, he really was a mastermind of espionage, not a politician, but a spy who has um, really the Russian polity and Russian society appreciates the people of these kind. Um, like as a spy, as a secret operator, you are much more successful as a politician in Russia. So he worked his way, but in, in a sense that not his project, it was not Russia born out of his head. I would say it's Russia born out of the 500 years of our history. And now we're living through the last act of the Russian tragedy, the last act of the uh, damage of the Russian Empire that has been going on for a hundred years. From 1917, there was you no know, Act 1. In 1991, there was Act 2 of the breakup of the Russian Empire. And now it's like an empire in remission, but uh, it's still uh, uh, a doomed project. In the end, you know, in the 21st century, Russia cannot live through the 21st centuries being the empire of the, of the previous centuries. So we will see the breakup of the empire. And what we see now is like, you know, the last, uh, the agony of, of, of the empire awaiting its uh, natural death. Yes, and I was going to ask, I mean, even in the few months since the the most recent chapters that went into your book have been written have you seen evolutions in the in the pattern that you've been tracing the new constitution for example anything you'd point to that's evolved either to support or accentuate or kind of pull back from your thesis well, in, uh, 2020 has been a big year everywhere in Russia too and in Russia there's been a constitutional coup let's call it this way the constitution was remodeled uh, to make Russia an effective, uh, you know, Russia ceased being a republic. It's much more of a monarchy these days, uh, with some decorative elements of a republic and of a democracy. Um, so yes, uh, the entire political system is now geared uh, towards one person. Uh, also, this has been a total uh, stall on any kind of uh, opposition activity this is because of the coronavirus. Um, so, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, there are no demonstrations, there are no, uh, you know, audible and vi visual, pro vis visible protest uh, around, um, and uh, there are some, you know, uh, local fires all over the place, uh, like the ongoing protest in Khabarovsk, and then Belarus, of course. Um, this is a sort of a possible model for how things could go in, in Russia. So, um, yeah, in this sense, uh, the situation is just going along the same lines as it has been uh, for, the past, for the past few years. And I would say the regime has fewer and fewer resources, obviously. Uh, also, the oil price is going down, and this is uh, the main uh, um, variable. Uh, when thinking about the future of Russia, of the Russian regime, because uh, Russia's uh, futures, uh, Russia's destiny is vitally linked to the dynamics of the oil price. And each time uh, the price hits low, we see a revolutionary reform in the country. 
as happened in 1991, as happened in the crisis of 2008, uh, when there was Medvedev presidency, and, um, and, and, and so on. So uh, I would say that, you know, history uh, together with energy, together with the uh, oil revolution and the green revolution, eventually in the span of the several you know, years uh, within the next decade, uh, decade and a half, will change uh, the course of Russian history. And of course, in the shorter term, we've just seen the uh, announcement of Joe Biden's victory as US president. How do you think Putin's relationship with Trump has evolved and, and how it might change relationships now with Russia, with the new president? Frankly, I don't think there will be a major change. Um, uh, there was a, of course, there was Russian support of Trump, uh, and I do believe uh, uh, the evidence about uh, Russian involvement in the U.S. elections, uh, no matter whether this was sanctioned or not sanctioned by Putin, whether there were the competing security agencies vying for Kremlin's attention and resources. So Trump, of course, was um, very uh, valuable for Putin as a... Um, as a agent provocateur, right? As somebody, as somebody uh, who is uh, driving the divide in the Western community. So uh, Russia objectively is interested in any rifts, uh, in any uh, crisis, in any problems uh, in the West uh, with liberal democracy in Western unity. Russia is objectively interested in Brexit. Russia is objectively interested in Trump. Russia is objectively interested in like anti-migrant uh, movement within the European Union. For instance, the recent terrorist acts. Uh, in France, uh, connected with a caricature and the rise of Islamic radicalism, Islamic protest. I well, I, I do. I not say this is Moscow's hand, although there are Chechens involved um, all over the place. Um, uh, these are emigrate Chechens, but their link with the uh, uh, head of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, is still very strong. Uh, once a Chechen, you are always a Chechen, no matter whether you are in France. I mean, you are dependent because you still have relatives living back in Chechnya, and many people would behave the. the the way that, but once again, I'm not uh, speculating here. But Russia is objectively interested in this kind of uh, religious and racial tension, saying that look, the West is falling apart. Uh, Russia is the island of stability. We're still preserving uh, the white Christian civilization. Uh, Western democracy is falling apart. So it's not only us uh, playing with democracy, but look, uh, West has failed, West has collapsed. Look at the U.S. elections, like um, uh, the Russian official media are, so, are now saying that, you know, democracy is failing, uh, they can't count their votes, uh, the country is divided, there are black riots all over the place, and, um, and so on. So Russia is objectively interested in all sorts of crises, and uh, therefore Trump was an uh, ideal pick of uh, the, so to say, of the Kremlin, um, no matter whether he was or was not supported. So with Biden, I think there will be more caution, um, ready, like, you know, getting used to each other. Um, but I don't see a radical rift. And um, I would say uh, the sanctions regime are already in place. 
and you know Trump had to go for sanctions to prove to the public that he is not pro-Russian, that can he can do you know something something counter-Russian. Uh, Biden administration is objectively interested in uh, signing the START uh, three treaty, uh, the uh, strategic uh, missiles treaty, um, and. Uh, uh, in this in, in this sense, uh, I would say um, Russia would still be waiting for the you know outcome of the U.S. presidential elections to settle in because you know Trump has not accepted, of course, the results of uh, the Biden victory. There will be uh, litigation. Uh, there will be courts uh, going on for weeks and weeks, and uh, so Russia will be just sitting and waiting. And finally, Sergey, what what about for you? What are your uh, future plans? professionally and in terms of your research and writing? Well, I would like to concentrate more on writing and uh, this was really a big boost. Uh, so also apart from um, the um, uh, British Prize, uh, the book uh, was a big success on the continent. It was translated into eight or nine languages, I think. So uh, I think I now have some kind of name. So I'm just uh, have some uh, books uh, in my head uh, planning. Uh, one is, uh, I think, is coming out. Not coming out, but they will submit it to the publisher before the end of the year. So concentrating more on Russia on, on writing, especially since I left the high school of economics. But also uh, there's one other thing which I'll for instance, we'll be doing tonight, and um, we have started a free Moscow University, um, which is uh, made up uh, largely of people who were uh, fired by the High School of Economics. And there are some, apart from me, I'm not talking about me, but some really top professors. So we have started an online university, uh, which was a big success uh, in its first iteration. It already started in September, and now I'm joining it from November. And uh, so I now have a course of uh, 20 people online, and I like like now have 70 applications. So I have to choose 20 um, people from uh, 70 applications. Uh, so this activity will be going on. So paradoxically, virus has helped us in the sense that online education is a big hit now. That's a that's an optimistic note uh, because going back to your earlier point about um, Leviathan Zviagantsev's interpretation in the film, of course, the other thing to me that was striking about it was the representation of the, as you might say, the typical Russian male as being actually ultimately impotent, you know, driven to alcohol, at frustration at the corruption and his inability to push through. Um, but it sounds like there, actually, you, you really have a message of human agency and the possibility to still operate and to act and to push back. No, I think I think uh, the people are stronger than the forces of history and the forces of um, of the state. Uh, so I see uh, you were asking about like the response I'm getting from people, but you know even f apart from my book, but I mean, I'm seeing uh, many independent uh, thinking people. I see you know small businesses surviving. I see um, a significant number of people thinking differently. So uh, and the modernization in Russia has um, over the past thirty years has gone too far. I mean it's too deeply ingrained. Uh, for Russia to relapse into some, you know, another version of North Korea or Turkmenistan or with all due respect, some kind of orthodox Iran. Um, because, look, there's no ideology. The authority has no ideology apart from stealing and staying in power. And people see this quite well. 
and uh, there's still um, you know millions and millions of people of educated people uh, and um, partially globalized people so I think eventually this uh, reality uh, of modernization and globalization will work its way through the concrete uh, which uh, you know the authorities are pouring upon us so, Sergei Medvedev, once again, um, congratulations on winning the Pushkin House Book Prize and uh, all the very best. Great, uh, great to great you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, thanks for this interview. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast. This episode was presented and recorded by Andrew Jack and edited and produced for Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. Sergei Medvedev's The Return of the Russian Leviathan, translated by Stephen Diel, is the winner of the 2020 Pushkin House Book Prize. To buy the book, and for information on all the shortlisted books, head to pushkinhouse.org. For more of the best content on Russian culture, make sure to check out our website for more blogs and podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and make sure you're receiving our weekly newsletter with a roundup of our online content and upcoming events. Thanks for listening.